Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is Science for People Who Give a Shit. Folks, there's a lot going on out there. Clearly, you're trapped inside again because you live in the east coast of Maine and there's wildfire smoke outside your door. Our world is changing every single day. We give you the tools you need to feel better and to fight for a better future for everyone. Uh, We're going to give you the context about something specific straight from the smartest people on earth, and then the action steps you can take to get involved and to support them. Our guests are educators and doctors and scientists, uh, founders and CEOs and investors, journalists, astronauts, policymakers, activists, you name it. Some quick housekeeping. Uh, reminder, you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at ImportantNotImp, or you can email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. I love hearing from everyone. Conversations with y'all are, are truly my favorite part of doing this thing. Um, number two, you can join tens of thousands of other smart people. You can subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. 10 minutes every Friday, super easy. You're all caught up. Most important science news, some really helpful analysis, and again, our bread and butter action steps. And third, uh, you can hunt for a new impactful job on the front lines of the future at importantjobs.com. On the other hand, if you work for a company or organization already doing that work or looking to hire people to do that work, you can list your open roles there for free and get them in front of our entire community of shit-givers. Again, that's at importantjobs.com. And folks, if you're new here, uh, or you're just catching up with everything because life is fucking crazy, check out some of our most recent episodes here. Uh, you find an incredible conversations, two actually last week, how to protect yourself from wildfire smoke by understanding what's in it and what you can do to protect your body, your kids, your family. Pay maybe the most impactful conversation uh, we have released yet. People are just loving this thing and they're sharing it everywhere. Uh, conversation with Alex Stefan, how to really think about what the moment we're in and what's coming. Conversation about uh, what can we do to uh, improve the problem with fucking mosquitoes, which are now everywhere again. And also how to buy carbon offsets and whether they're bullshit. And of course, you're going to want to hit the subscribe button so you can get that conversation we got coming next week uh, with Dr. Ruman Chowdhury, uh, who's the new Twitter ethics chief, and uh, what she is doing uh, to build a backbone of ethics there uh, and in other places. Folks, uh, this week's episode is another in our informal news series called What Can I Do? Uh, And these episodes, uh, boy, uh, they are, I think, a helpful and a valuable and an inspirational way to look at what young people and and maybe someday not so young people, we're only two or three into this, of of how they're using their passions and their skills and their lived experiences to participate in this great transformational uh, moment, to feel better for themselves and to drive some systemic change. I'm so excited today to share my conversation with someone who inspires me all the time, Isaias Hernandez, or more notably uh, known on Instagram and everywhere else, uh, Queer Brown Vegan. Uh, Though as he puts it, those are the same thing. Isaias has built a tremendous uh, following over almost, or maybe even over at this point, 100,000 followers on at least Instagram uh, with this intersectional approach to uh, again, being queer and brown and vegan and and using empathy and and to 
and to educate folks, again, on Instagram and, and all these other platforms, I really don't understand because I'm like the grail knight in Indiana Jones. I'm ancient and falling over, but I learned so much regardless, and, and I think you'll be just as inspired as I am right now. So please enjoy my conversation, be inspired by my conversation with Isaiah Hernandez, queer brown vegan. My guest today is Isaias Hernandez, uh, and together I am excited to dig into a more youthful and energetic, intersectional and inspirational approach to bringing people into this, uh, some people call it a fight, uh, some people call it a way to heal the planet, bring the people together, uh, get through what is a very transformational and obviously very complicated and uh, at times uh, intimidating and scary moment. I truly believe um, following folks like Isaiah is is what's going to get us through this. So excited to uh, have him here today. Isaiah, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much again for having me, Quinn. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Isaiah, if you could, uh, uh, the people real quick, uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Isaiah Hernandez. I'm also an environmental educator and the creator of an educational platform known as Queer Brown Vegan, where I create introductory forms of environmentalism through illustrations, graphics, and video series. That's amazing. That is like the most well put together statement. If someone asked me what I did, I would just stammer for 20 minutes and not have a straight answer about anything. So you're, you're, you're already blowing me out of the water. I think it's awesome. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm one of those idiots on on Instagram who you know occasionally there's a picture of my dog or or something like that or you know an accidental picture that my child took and yours is is not only inspirational but obviously so professional and well considered and uh, it's it's impressive it's impressive so I, and that's ignoring that like the actual content itself just literally how you're able to hold it together is amazing um, uh, Isaiah if you could we like to start with one sort of semi-ridiculous tongue-in-cheek question, but it does set the tone a little bit. Uh, instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, I like to ask, uh, Isaiah, why are you vital to the survival of the species? You know, I really love this. So I would say that I am vital because I am part of the resistance that has always existed to create a regenerative just world. And so I believe that education for me is one of the strongest suits that is both an empowering and dangerous tool of how we navigate language. So I say that education is the true wealth that we all need. Um, I love that. That's incredible. And, you know, I, I think that's, to me at least, part of what is so cool, because as we were just saying offline, you know, again, especially uh, th this week and, and, and lately in the past couple of years, you know, there's so many folks uh, who come to this from every walk of life, whether they're a big CEO who's worried about their company or uh, someone in a family or a person who's by themselves or they're young or they're old, whatever it might be. Um, it's just, it's the question is just always, you know, what, what can I do? And that might be because mm -hmm. you were trapped at home with COVID uh, a year ago or now, um, or, or it's climate stuff uh, or heat or whatever it, it, it could be. Uh, and my, again, my usual lazy answer is like, well, what, what can you do? And, and I, I try to help folks understand that they're never going to be more effective or more excited or more committed, more, more diligent about whatever it is, however they want to get involved than, than with something they're already into. And whether, again, the vehicle could, could be anything. It could be marching. It could be making signs or investments or, or Instagram, whatever it might be. And, and you are so in inclusive and intersectional. You've already got almost a uh, hundred thousand followers, which is incredible. I would be terrified if that was the case for me. <laughs> yeah. 
but there's been this, thankfully, um, s- such a groundswell of support and encouragement, certainly not everywhere yet, but for, for environmental justice, right? Uh, yeah. to, to pick one's sort of umbrella term. And you have done such a hell of a job building a, a case and an example for intersect for an intersectional perspective on this, right? Like you said, it's it's queer brown vegan. It's uh, you've created this uh, safe place for more people to not only come out and learn, but also to say like, oh, oh, I can educate from my lived experience, and I can make an impact maybe if I get enough people to listen, or even if I'm just shouting into the void, whatever whatever it might be. So. That's what attracted me to you and why I'm so excited and, and honored to, to have you on one of your many 100,000 uh, followers. Isaiah, I, you said, uh, gosh, I can't remember when it, when it was, but I've been taking notes forever, once that uh, environmental education is a human right. I'm curious if, at least in that moment, but then also just more broadly, uh, did you mean a right to provide education or a right to receive it or both? I'm, I'm curious where, how that fits. I would say both because our educational system in the, United States, in the United States specifically was designed to make people comfortable than to be uncomfortable. And this is true to how people are witnessing and reacting to the ecological crisis because the way that environmentalism is often presented is very siloed, right? It doesn't include humans as part of nature. It often preserves natural systems as these unique systems that are delicate, but yet we're not part of those systems. And so I believe that when people now are trying to grapple with the emotions about climate doomism or climate injustices hitting their own neighborhoods, a lot of people are in this state of freeze or frozenness that they don't know how to best respond to things. And so I think when we talk about environmental education, it should encompass everyone's lived experiences. But we understand that racism um, that is often banned in some educational schools or critical race theory, um, these are kind of the conversations that are left out. And so a lot of students right now feel so disconnected and overwhelmed with what to do because of the lack of education systems that has supported them to find their own paths. I think that's, yeah. I mean, you know, these tools, like, again, I know most of your audience, and correct me if I'm wrong, is is Instagram-based, but, you know, these tools have been around for for a while now. But but like you said, whether it's the algorithms, and we've spent a lot of time, I, I have at least trying to learn and think about these algorithms and what they mean and all the very many ways they're broken. We're having another conversation this week with someone about that. There's a lot of people trying to do the right thing, but holy hell, there are a lot of people who are just barreling ahead without any consideration for it. But, well, you know what? Let's let's back up. I'm sure you've got this question a thousand times, but again, my goal is to eventually work towards action steps that people can take to, to, to even if they just want to follow you mm-hmm. um, on the day-to-day or they want to get involved in some way in their own way. But if could you just take a minute and talk about I guess, what prompted you to start your feed that day, but also, you know, a little bit about your lived experience that got you to that point? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I grew up also in Los Angeles, um, California, my whole life. And my parents had immigrated from Mexico in the 1980s. I grew up living in San Fernando Valley area, and I lived predominantly in San Fernando, Pacoima, and Silmar. And throughout my life, I lived in affordable housing, um, taking the metro to school, and just realizing the amount of pollution that was nearby. And until I was later, older in life, I realized that the chemical industries that were nearby my house were actually polluting us every day. And so I think for me, it started in high school when I learned about environmental justice, right? I had this 
passion and curiosity for the environment, but I didn't know who to ask questions to. I didn't have mentors to ask like, what does climate change look like to us? Because often it's presented of it's happening in the global South or countries that were heavily exploited. And so these conversations were often siloed at siloed and othered to be like, Oh, it's not happening here in the United States. So don't worry. And so I think that's really what kind of pushed me to learn more. And I had this idea of like, to be an environmentalist, you need to get a college degree. And so I went through college and I went to Berkeley, got my environmental science degree I realized how inaccessible academia is at a whole, right? It's so yeah. inaccessible. It costs so much thousands of dollars. And I would say that low-income students have one of the largest struggles um, to really survive these institutions for, for them to be sustainable in their physical and, and mental sure. mindset. So upon graduating, I worked multiple jobs. I actually worked for creative industries, um, like creative agency. So I created it back in 2019 because I felt like my degree was going to nothing, right? I didn't, I couldn't go to grad school. I couldn't afford it. I was like, I can't, this isn't really realistic for me. I'm not going to get in debt for like a hundred thousand dollars for the next 10 years of my life. Like that's unrealistic. And so I decided to pivot and go into social media and say, okay, I have some graphic design skills, very minimal, but okay. Let's do these series where I wish I could have learned this when I entered college so that I had some understanding when approaching these conversations regarding conservation rights, indigenous rights, like environmentalism rights, like injustice-centered conversations. So when I created Curbound Vegan, it was designed through my own educational experience, right? One is like the color coding, right? It's not because I'm rainbow and like I love rainbows, right? It's because I took notes in college color coding. So that was really impactful for my educational experience. And so a lot of Generation Z and millennial students are very visual learning based, right? Nearly, I think, 50 to 60% of human population best learns visually now. And so that really has helped me to shape my career, who I am as an environmentalist. And so that's really kind of what got people interested is these like very simple phrases and simple topics. And also most of the times there was never really a real answer to it. It was more about let's discuss this topic together, but there's no solution to this because I want to hear what your solution is to it. Because I believe that environmental education is complex and unique because it depends on each person's environment. That's so interesting. I mean, you, that's the application of it, right? It was, I went to university, it's prohibitively expensive. I couldn't go any further, which is what so many folks are facing right now, whether they've already gone further and realized like, there's no version of paying this back. Um, and so they're crushed by debt. But you were still able to take this look and go, well, I did learn color coding. I have worked for a creative agency. Essentially, you weren't, and this is often what I try to help folks feel okay about. Again, I'm 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 this like ancient millennial, but you know, you weren't uh, some kid who was like, I'm going to download Instagram today and start just posting rants. You know, you, you were, you considered not only your lived experience and in, in your family's history and, and your own educational experiences, but also, okay, this is actually, these are some professional tools I have, um, which I think is, again, using that phrase myself, like, I feel like that can feel exclusive, right? I think we've all have some version of that, something that we've been working on, uh, whether you're writing or you've been on Tumblr, whatever it might be forever. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm not going to ask how old you are. I'm sure you're younger than me because that's got to be 
the easiest answer. But most of us grew up at this point with a camera in our hands, right? Like we've all been taking pictures, which is entirely different than the generations before us, right? Um, so I, I feel like those things are just more inherent than than we realize. So I, I love that you know you have you you thought okay, I'm going to start with this series of things I wish I'd learned, which is again I don't want to say like clickbait, but it applies to so many people, and that's the best that's the good version of clickbait, right? Is yeah. people going that's me, like I have to read this thing because it matters so much. You know, I've I've a, a couple friends who uh, are are very successful screenwriters, and they have a podcast with fifty sixty thousand people, and and they don't take ads and they don't do anything because their whole point is like nobody can afford film school. We should just give this to people on a podcast because it's 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 crazy that they should have to think like I can't get this education because I can't afford it. That's that's just untenable. Though unfortunately, it's just the way this one of the very many ways this this country is built. So I, I want to talk about your your feed a little bit. So you make an effort, or at least this is the way I I have I have gathered it. So please correct me wherever I'm wrong. Um, that's my entire job. That seems to alternate between like education. Uh, in context about bigger movements, like, uh, again, it's queer, brown, vegan, so there's uh, greenwashing, I think there's uh, rainbow washing, there's vegan capitalism, which is a, obviously a big one these days, but also, I love, like, the more day-to-day -day stuff, like vegan enchiladas, which I could not have clicked on quicker than I did, uh, or paper tape. We can share recipes later. I've got an amazing one. I'm, it's fantastic. It involves sweet potatoes. I'm curious, actually, just mechanics-wise, just to get nitty-gritty for a second, do you... Again, because you you really professionally consider these things, do you pay any attention to analytics or feedback on your post and where you see a lot of engagement? Because I, I I love that you actually tackle both of those things, like a more comprehensive view, again, because it's intersexual in nature. Because, again, we talk here a lot about the kitchen sink approach to, to fixing this thing. So I, I wonder how much you pay attention to that and how much that uh, drives the work you're doing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I think the first thing is, you know, I've made this like distinguishment that, you know, Core Brown Vegan is Isaiah Fernandez in some sense, right? Like, sure. I'm not a corporation, I'm not an organization. Yeah. So that allows kind of the more humanization process throughout my content. And so I believe that, you know, I do 50-50, right? 50% lifestyle, 50% education, because we have different people that are interested in different things. And sure. I think about the important thing about being like an intersectional vegan or environmentalist, however we may call it, is that I get to pull people from different audiences that typically wouldn't follow me for certain reasons, right? I have some people that just follow me for the educational reels. I have some people who just follow me for the food recipes. I have some people who just follow me for my foraging videos, right? And so sure. I tell myself, like, if I'm able to pull these people from different audiences into these conversations, sure. then they're willing to actually take that a step further and educate those around them. And so I believe that that's one of the biggest things that um, kind of was a, both a pro and con in my end, right? I remember a professor telling me that I'm too diverse in my skill sets and that's one of my flaws. But I've really understood that, yes, that was kind of limiting to hear that back then and kind of it did mess me up at one point in my career. But I really changed it to be like, you know what? I like all of these topics. I like math, science, like writing now. I like, I love to do all these other things. And so I'm going to show it to my audience and show them like, you know, I'm not perfect at it. I'm not the best at it, but I'm going to work on it actively and have this active mindset rather than trying to dehumanize myself and only stick to one thing. And so I believe that's one of the uh, benefits that Queer Brown Vegan has is that I get to have these different conversations from different people. And when it comes to measuring impact, I would say that, you know, 
I try to always remind myself, like, I'm really thankful for the audience. Like, I don't look at numbers as much as like a large reach anymore. I usually just see the impact by the conversations I have with people, sure. whether it be through the comment section, whether it be people messaging me, telling me like, you know, about their school project or them wanting to meet me on Zoom. I feel that this is one of the most important things about mentorship is that you actually give it back. Because I remember at younger age, I had different mentors and they were all great and they gave so much to me. And so how do I give that back now that I'm not in an academic institution, now that I'm not in like high school? Like, how do I give it back to others? So they have some validity and some reassurance to know that people like me are doing this out there. And so that's really what has helped people throughout the process is is to validate their lived experience and help them through that. I mean, I love that. You know, there's this, again, I don't want to say it's people trying to game a system again, talking about algorithm stuff, but you see, I'm a little more focused probably too much so on on maybe the Twitter side where some of the more, you know, obnoxiously highbrow and entitled political conversations might happen and things like that or people doing entrepreneurship of 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 a different sort uh that's that's probably a lot less creative and you'll see things like oh this is how to build your profile and put in there like I'm the vegan guy or I'm the queer guy or I'm this. And so it's the first thing people see. So the people go, oh, this is what I'm going to get. And this is what I'm going to do. And this is how Isaiah, you should design your feed so that this is what you're talking about. And people know, and I get it. But again, and this is part of why, you know, besides me being half terrified all the time, but also excited about the future, because I do believe there's room for both, even in weeks like these, why we do not just uh, climate stuff, which as you know, is like this enormous umbrella of, mm-hmm. of shit anyways. But also we 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 took on COVID because we had already been talking about pandemic preparedness and 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 living situations and uh you know and uh, genomic testing or we talk about antibiotics or pediatric cancer because I sure. hate cancer, you know. But it's also because and, and this is what I love about like you said from 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 enchiladas to greenwashing, like it's it's so important and this is what i had to learn and and again it feels like uh like a wizard of oz a little bit when the curtains pulled back you know you realize just both how intersectional all these systems are for better or worse and a lot of times these days it's worse but also that they were designed that way and they've just gotten completely out of hand and so that's why we focus on all those different things so that i understand for myself so that i can help other people and like you said employ some mentorship to help folks understand why marginalized people in Los Angeles got destroyed by COVID so much worse than everyone else. And it's because Mm -hmm. they have pre-existing conditions from living and going to school next to uncapped oil wells for 30 years, you know, or their bedrooms hotter. And that's what happens. You know, there's a great writer for, and I've talked about this endlessly on the show, but great science writer um, for the Atlantic named Ed Yong. Um, And he wrote just, just tremendous coverage throughout the pandemic, uh, trying to help folks understand the virus and this and the disease, but also the the anthropology and the sociology of why we were acting the way we were as a people and individually. And and he had this quote that I always mangle, but it's essentially that COVID was this flood that swept over a sidewalk, exposing all the cracks that were already there. And and my version mm-hmm. of that was like, look, it's it was this pop quiz on March 15th, 2020, or whatever, when we all took our kids out of schools or stopped going to work. And and it was COVID going, okay, this is a test on every decision you've made so far you know, about how to build your society and your economy and your medical system. And we just, we, we failed in, in a thousand different ways. 
But to me, that's why it's important to understand and and come to terms with and and try to operate within these intersectional dimensions. And to also, like we were saying, have these smaller personal actions that that help you feel like your day-to-day actions are adding up and that you're doing something, but also taking part in the more systemic fights, like for someone like me to understand what rainbow washing is, you know, and what that means mm-hmm. in a practical way for organizing and legislation and stuff like that. So so I'm I'm very thankful that that you're doing that as opposed to the I'm just doing the the vegan thing or yeah. you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, definitely. No. And I think that that's the most unique things about as people, right? We have different interests, right? And I, I believe sure. that like as myself, like environmentalism is one of the most holistic things that I love about my life because growing up, I've always thought about these different systems. And the reason why I chose environmental science too was the fact of like, you know, I didn't know if I wanted to do economics. I didn't know if I wanted to do research, like um, ecologist, you know, there's just so many fields out there. And so exposing myself to these different subjects and materials does give me this more holistic understanding of how both the industry side, how they operate and the science and research side and other these, these other industries and kind of give myself more of a reassurance to be like, okay, this, I know what I want at this point in my life now. Sure. Sure. So let's talk about food for a second and not just because we both clearly appreciate food so very much. And I feel like I could get into foraging all day. Um, something I have just no experience with, but I couldn't be more excited about, but I want to talk about it, not just Again, I, I try to be upfront about this stuff, but you know, I, I have been very privileged throughout my life to never have to worry about food insecurity, uh, much less actual hunger, especially now in a moment when, when so many millions of Americans are dealing with that for, for sometimes the first time. Um, you have talked quite a bit about, uh, and I'm going to use your term here because I, I think it's great, nutritional injustice. Um, and I like that because it feels, again, acknowledging that there are these systems and that they were designed this way. And that term nutritional injustice feels so much more righteous and action oriented than food insecurity, which feels like this very blase way of describing what that is, but it doesn't describe that it was done to someone, right? It implies a system that was again, designed to work this way. and, And that's just not unlike what we have done with housing and schools and healthcare. Um, could you talk a little bit about why, like you said, you do I do economy? Do I do ecology? Like, what do I do? Why does food mean so much to you? Yeah, definitely. So I think that for me, like food is so rich, right? In both culture and experiences. And I believe that at a young age, like my mom taught everyone in the family to cook. Like she's like, everyone's learning how to cook because you're going to have, you're going to have to learn how to do it yourself. And so when I experience all of these different food narratives about my parents growing up in a farm in Mexico, growing through the land, using what was available to them via bioregion, like I really learned about kind of the ethics about food, but here in the West, right? It's like, for me, it matters so much because people of color who look like me that speak Spanish too are also um, victims of the food system that is designed to oppress, right? So like animals and humans are both uh, terribly treated in industrialized settings. And so how do we recognize that injustices in the food that we eat is unethical? And the reason, the way that we should, we are paying for food has been economically suppressed, meaning that, you know, if, have, if you've ever picked up blueberries by hand, for an hour straight, which I've done before, and you only get paid $3, $4. It is the most horrible and so much sacrifice that goes into that. And so 
I believe that like, you know, it, at whole, like we as human beings, like have this responsibility um, to address these corporations that have privatized the lands, that have stolen the seeds from indigenous communities and have really um, displaced a lot of black and indigenous farmers. I believe like 90% plus of farm land is owned by white farmers. And 99. 99, yes, 99. Yeah. And so all the black and indigenous farmers that did have farmlands were essentially evicted, um, were displaced. Um, racism is a major cause for this. And so how do we reckon with this history? And so I think that for me, when I grew up going to food banks or like churches, I didn't necessarily understand that I was someone that was facing food insecurity. What I understood was that the food that they gave us back then as like a, I don't know, 10 year old, I was happy because they give us, you know, they give you frozen food, they give you pizza, they give you like junk food and you're like happy as a kid in some experience. But sometimes you're like, is this really nutritionally for kids' development? No. And so you look into the industries like the dairy and meat industry, you find out that they subsidize so much and they give it away to these food banks, like to a limit. And there's a lot of food waste that goes into that industry too. They give it to these churches. And so people are essentially eating poison. Like that's not, it's something that is unsustainable for them. But at the same time, it's food, right? Like they're going to eat it. I, I ate it too. Like it's food. Why would, why would I let it go to expiration date, you know? So I think for me, food has become this very uh, political act where it's like, I recognize that the food I eat doesn't matter if I'm vegan because I'm vegan right now, like is unethically grown by people. And obviously I partake in this globalized food system that is unsustainable. And so in trying to localize my own food diet or my own food system, it is often hard because I can't afford farmer's markets every week. I'd go broke. So that's one of the realities I realized that how do we reckon with this? And so talking about these topics for me is a way that I'm able to really not validate my experience, but to really understand like, these are the conversations I want to have. So people start to think, what does it mean to localize food systems and decentralize large scale food systems? I love that. Uh, Two things. First one's a two-parter. I would love to share two conversations I've had in the past with you. One is with a woman named Leah Penniman, uh, who is a farm in uh, central New York called Soul Fire Farm. And mm-hmm. it's 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 just this incredible, lack of a better word, a, a, a school, a training center for black and indigenous uh, wannabe farmers to, to come up and then take what they've learned to go and try to get some of that land back to also make it uh, not only able to be substance farming for themselves and their families and their communities, but to build a, a farm that might actually be profitable and to use all these sustainable ways of farming that, um, you know, folks that look like me have used to not used to destroy, <laughs> destroy the soil all along. Um, second of the second one, before I forget is a conversation I had with a woman, uh, Dr. Baronda Montgomery, um, who wrote this incredible book, uh, I think it was called The Secret Life of Trees. Um, and But it's really cool. It's about all the things we can learn from plants and how they react mm-hmm. in their community. But she talks a ton, and it's really important to her to talk a lot about mentorship. And I think you would just love it because she is just such an incredible human being. And it's, you know, she's still inside academia, but it's really interesting, her perspective on how can she make that the one of the primary parts of her job uh, is to help bring up that next generation. She's just a fantastic human being. Um, uh, and I guess second part, most important is, what did your mom teach you how to cook? 
What 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 was what was when she said you Isaiah, you're going to learn how to cook. Uh, what did you start with? The first thing I started with actually was cooking an egg. I remember like excited to like I don't know to start cooking, and, and I don't eat eggs anymore. I'm vegan, but during that time, I remember like making beans and rice was a staple food for me and tortillas, right? Like homemade sure. tortillas, and so for me, it, for me, it was very. It it seemed almost sometimes boring for me because at a young uh-huh. age, like you have to be very concentrated with cooking. You're like, when is it done? You're really impatient. But I think sure. as I got older and hearing my mom and like having these stories about her experiences having to use like cast irons only. She's like, no nonsticks. Like those are poisonous and like toxic for your health. Like we use cast irons in here. And now I do the same thing too. Like I think the same thing as her. And so I think like, you know, all these different recipes from like pambasos to enchiladas to um, caldo to chile rellenos. Like I had all these experiences um, about making these cultural rich foods that came from my culture, but then also hear stories kind of empowered me to feel that my grandma that taught my mom how to cook is in within me too. And so these are kind of these spiritual stories that I carry now that I would want to share too in the future if I have a family. Like this is things that I do want to continue having this lineage of history to pass down on. I love that. How And, and how did you find your way from uh these these ways of cooking and and the philosophies behind the cooking and and the recipes themselves and the and the the components of it how did you find your way to uh to a more vegan diet from there yeah so i would say for me like i in college i took the food and agriculture course and that's where we learned about 99% the farmlands owned by white farmers and i was like what like how that's right 80% is too much and you yeah. go 99 you go oh 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 god yeah yeah. And we learned about, you know, we read, we read Rachel Carson, right? Silent Spring. Sure. And so that was sure. one of the most popular books and I, and I loved it. And I learned more about food systems. And then we talked about factory and farms. We talked about the animals that are brutally killed, but also the humans that are exploited and have to do these same rotations over and over that they end up breaking their arms. There's no medical insurance. Um, they don't, they didn't even get PPE during the pandemic. Like, these are kind of the realities that I started to learn. And I was kind of horrified to be like, wow, why is no one really talking about this? I found out that many of the, the farmlands that are owned by these farmers, they threaten their, their migrant farm workers saying, if you don't do the job, we'll call ICE police on you. And so a lot of these people that are immigrants in many Black and uh, Latin communities have to constantly move that causes a contribution of their PTSD because you're constantly being uprooted in this place, right? In the East Coast when it's winter, where do you go when you can't farm during the winter? You go to the West Coast where there's obviously abundance of sunlight and um, other things. And so these are kind of the realities that I told myself, okay, I want to divest away from this system, like my act to not consume this and like not needing my body to need it, like was a good way for me to do that. And so I adopted the lifestyle uh, back in like 2018 when I graduated and I did a reduction strategy where I cut off meat first and then I went from cheese, yogurt, I kicked off yogurt and I was like, okay, cheese is the hardest part. And then I kicked off cheese and I did it and I was like, you know, the vegan cheese options that are out there weren't the best options that were there. I was like, they're not good, but I I guess I'll do it. Like, I'll be fine without it. And so now I found some good vegan cheeses that exist, but 
it's really yeah. come a long way. Yeah. It, it's come a long transformation way. Transformation that it has. Um, but yeah, like that's been really um, almost been three years vegan since then. And I think that with my foraging experience, I've found more natural foods that aren't coming from these also vegan large-scale corporations that I don't want to support because their mission isn't rooted in regenerative agriculture or land back. And so when I practice foraging, I get to really diversify my food plate and my food color because I've never in my entire life have eaten a mushroom that I've harvested. And until now, like this past few months, I've been able to really learn from that and actually cook now. And now I'm learning more about herbal medicine and other plants. That's really so cool to take the leap to foraging is uh, is is pretty neat. Um, it, it's both like exciting to me and terrifying, but I feel like with a, with a little bit of knowledge, it can take you a long way. And yeah, the cheese the cheese is always the hardest argument. I've been mostly vegan for gosh, I don't know, ten eleven years now, and uh, I'll tell you the 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 cheese substitutes at the beginning in the old days nightmare nightmare because you think oh I'll just switch just so bad to the point where it made me for a long time just go. I'm just, I'm, I'm just not doing any form of cheese. Like I'm not even going to participate in this. Cause it's so like, I'd rather have, have nothing. And like you said, there's some really great options out there now. And I feel like some of the, at least whether it's things you're making yourself out of cashews, which is really easy, or, you know, some of the newer companies are doing things in, in a more sustainable way. Um, there's some interesting options, but it's also like, you know, there's some best practices for building these things that you can take around to local restaurants or whatever it might be and and encourage them to make those things themselves. Because I think if there's a there's a great bagel shop local owned down the street here and I, every day I go in, I'm like, just take this vegan cheese recipe. Make, make, I need the cream cheese. Come on. Okay, it's, it's not actually that difficult and it's better for the planet, yada, yada, all this. Um, but yeah, boy, the old days. Darkness, darkness. I want to talk about this, uh, the food worker system, the the mostly migrant-driven food worker system that you you spoke about a little bit. And you are you are uh, raised in, in Los Angeles and I I spent uh you know the past 12 years there. I feel like some Americans know, not everyone does, that half of the United States fruits and vegetables and nuts are grown in harvested in California. Obviously uh part of the problem with America is most folks' diets don't involve fruits, vegetables, and nuts, um, but they are obviously incredibly important. But they're farmed and and harvested by these migrant workers, like you say, who barely got paid, who didn't get PPE, who got crushed by COVID, who are facing increasingly, especially in the Central Valley, just these extreme heat conditions and fires and smoke, which is just obscenely toxic, in whatever land actually still has enough water to grow anything, which is a dwindling amount. And that's just, I mean, that's just the plant-based stuff, right? To say nothing of, again, what happened during COVID to the folks who worked in meat processing facilities and things like that. Um, on, on a broader scale, I'm curious if you have seen any progress being made on building more of a support system for these very essential workers or uh, anything that you feel like, uh, you know, can be done to to support them in any way. And again, I think about, you know, as we try to take the kitchen sink approach to a lot of these things, like for example, hunger, like it's obviously very important that we pass legislation so that people, uh, you know, have money to do with what they need to do. Um, and that can take a while and it can be complicated, but we also have to feed people tonight, which why, you know, we have to support organizations like Feeding America. Um, so I'm curious on on either spectrum or anywhere in between where you feel like progress can be made to, again, to to support those workers, because it's clear that 
white people are not interested in doing those jobs as much as they complain about them. Yeah, definitely. So I would say that there's two ways, right? Community, community action and system action, right? I, I believe that communities hold one of the most largest powers compared to the institutions. I think for so long, we're often taught that institutions create change, not people. But in reality, both do create change. The reason why institutions have created change is because the people from those communities have either pressured those people or the people who entered those systems to create that change. And so I, I really believe that like there is needs to be this constant collaboration from a local standpoint. Like if you don't if you don't know what you want to do, right? Like a lot of people always think I need to be a lawyer, I need to be a policymaker in DC to make this change in the industrial agriculture. It's like no, team up with organizations that are locally, right? Like Food Empowerment Project is at the intersections of veganism, migrant justice, economic justice, and. Um, really, they raise awareness on this issue while also doing fundraisers um, to support children of migrant farm workers. Recently, they did a, a backpack drive um, to help fundraise money to donate to these children because there's a lack of access to, like you said, like electricity, um, to laptops sometimes, and even sure. school supplies. And right as we are, as we're big advocates for education at, at its whole, um, these are kind of the realities. And the other reality is supporting like organizations like Earth Justice, right? They they have tried to sue the North Carolina hog farms that have created global environmental justice in those communities. And we know for a fact that the EPA, even though they constantly review these cases, they are slow. There's also a lot of issues in that organization. I've had sure. grad students during my time that told me they worked for the EPA and it was a mess. So I really believe that like sometimes there needs to be that community local action to um, to uproot these systems because I think that a lot of people have gotten tired over the last few years over the failure for many institutions and systems that are in place for the people not to be met because corporations hold the largest scale funding of these people. So supporting grassroots activists um, to me, whether you're sharing their messages, sending the money at the front lines, um, sharing their messages to your friends or family. That's one of the strongest things that we can do because these are the people who are victims of these injustices, yet they're the ones at the front lines risking themselves to get deported, arrested, face violence, sexual assault. So these are kind of the most people that we need to constantly tell ourselves, like, if we're going to be behind them, how do we act as supporters for people? I love that. Thank you for that perspective. And we'll definitely include uh, uh, some of those in our in our action steps and our show notes and, and the whole thing. So you, you clearly have so much wonderful personal momentum and, and confidence about these things and you're learning new things every day. And, and like you said, and, and I feel similarly uh, that the, the engagement with my audience, and it seems like you feel the same way, is is the thing that drives you the most, and 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 is how you measure your your impact or your progress or or whatever ever to whatever it might be. We we have this when you sign up for email, uh, you get a sort of a intro series from me of like, hey, who, here's who I am, here's what we do, here's why we do it, and there's one step, uh, and it's introducing this action steps theme that we have, um, and it basically says uh, essentially. This is what how we define these things. This is why we do them. And here's how you could actually get started and do one today. And this is what it looks like and what you can do. And it's to an organization that's fantastic called Give Directly. And and they 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 operate mostly 
uh, in in the global south and, and Africa. They did a lot of work here during during COVID. But it's essentially, it gives people money transfers uh, so that they can do what they need to do. Because some days, Isaiah, you might need water and another day it might be shelter, it might be mm-hmm. food, and it's not on me to, to tell you that. And so we say, uh, you know, Click this link, give five bucks, and you'll have done your first action step, and it'll be great. And a you know, large percentage of people do it. But my favorite, my favorite ones are. I'm sure there's people who who don't who do it and don't reply. And I hear from Give Direct Land stuff, but I'll get these emails from people saying like, you know, I didn't wake up and think I was going to donate to to this Give Directly Poverty thing today, but I did, and it and it and it feels really cool, and and that that is addicting. And the fact that if the global poverty level, which obviously changes regionally, is a dollar ninety, and I and I I was able to give five dollars, like, and this is a, a you know an organization that's been vetted top to bottom and is very impactful. Th- that's that's addicting, you know, to look yeah. at that, and and it makes me go like, oh, that's awesome, like more, you know, this is a person who is now able to engage more. Um, that all of that said, and I certainly have my fair share too. I'm curious if you could talk for just a minute about some of the more either day to day or week to week or yearly obstacles you're running into and and the difficulties you have as, as like you said, you started and I believe you said 2019, you know, what, what have been sort of the hurdles you've overcome or the ones you're currently facing so that people understand it's not just, uh, hey, I can do these things and let me throw it out there and I can I can influence 100,000 people. Obviously, you work very hard at it and you're very considerate, but, um, you know, these things don't just run seamlessly. Yeah, you know, I think one of the most hardest things I've realized is that you know, you don't, I, I wasn't in academia when I coined certain terms and diagrams. I, I, one of the biggest, I think one of the biggest hurdles is realizing that academia itself is a bubble sometimes. And so there are people that have often tried to dismiss my experience or dismiss who I am as a person because of my username, but then find out I went to college, I did environmental science. So I did research on this and yes, I don't have a master's in this specific field and that doesn't make me an expert. But I think that having to deal with um, people from elitism and elitist institutions is a real thing that I've, I've encountered. And it's the same thing that I that I encountered when I was an undergraduate too, even with grad students, right? They don't care about undergrads that much. And so I felt like it's one of the realities that I think as long as I know where I am, I'm at in my life. Like that's really what, that's what matters to me. I'm not here to fight for status. I'm not here to fight for a title either. Um, I'm here just to exist and to do my things. The other obstacle I would say like long-term is actually, I am writing a book. So I'm trying to finish my book proposal. I am probably in like last versions of the edits and going to submit it again to my literary agent. And so writing a book obviously is very difficult because I think proposal stages are probably the worst, but we'll see how that goes when I'm writing (laughs) the book. Um, And yeah, I would say like, you know, the hurdle is the idea of like trying to be a person too, right? While being expected to become this educator online. And so when I receive messages from different people dealing with injustices, telling me, can you raise awareness on this? This is happening in this country. This is happening there. I, I do feel that there is a moral responsibility, but also I am not a news station, but at the same time, I understand that the people who are trying to share this information with me is because the news won't be reporting the injustices happening globally. And so how do I reckon with that is understanding that I'm going to do what I can do right now. And that's going to help me be sustainable rather than having this 
very um, angry mindset of attacking everyone and then burning out within a year and being like, I can't do anymore because people don't care about me. When in reality, you never took breaks, you never took time to slow down. So I think that is probably the most hardest thing to do is deal with criticism when people are telling you you're not doing enough and you're just trying to survive to yourself as a human being. And I think with the pandemic, a lot of people have taken their frustrations and their insecurities and reflected it back online. And I've had moments where people are responding very rudely and I respond back in a very mature way. And then they're saying, sorry, I just had a bad day. I didn't mean to be mean to you. And I'm like, these are kind of the realities where we don't practice reciprocity and like mental health conversations. Yeah, I, I appreciate you being uh, so so forthright about that. And it's true. And And also just, you know, these things, and obviously, again, I, I have I have enormous privilege and continue to, um, but everyone is affected by this climate umbrella uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, and um, the, the things that you write about and you'll write about in your book, uh, that'll be uh, amazing and wonderful and so valuable and, and you that you create every day. Uh, you know, the, it is important to remind ourselves, and I, I sometimes do a poor job of this, that they can be fairly for lack of a better word, existential and difficult to deal with. Um, you know, it's it's important to recognize that we have our bad days too. Uh, and, you know, I just, I had a conversation with uh, two women I look up to so much. Uh, Amy Westervelt, who has this incredible podcast called Drilled, and her uh, her partner in crime for a project, uh, Hot Take, uh, Mary Anise Hegler, and talking to them. And, you know, one of their best advice is just like, you've got to find... Uh, your people in this thing who you can have honest conversations with, not just about your hard day, but about some of these topics because, and I think this is another step of, of, of recognition is understanding that not everyone is either uh, able to, or willing to dig into some of the more difficult things about what's, what's going on, certainly because I empathize with the fact that they can be hard to discuss. So if you can find those people as, you know, we describe them your your ride or dies who can handle the difficult conversations uh like my poor therapist who you know just has to hear it uh you know that can just be insanely valuable so you can deal with those people who respond rudely and you can deal with the days where like you said you're trying to write an insanely difficult book proposal but you're supposed to be this online educator and that's a lot yeah definitely yeah and i think i I like that last statement is being with your community like having friendships that holds you accountable uh, where you have these real and truthful conversations and that's healthy, right? I, I don't think that always people online have this image of you and so they expect you to be open to everything. But in reality, I feel like uh, we all have work to do within ourselves. And so I've realized in my end too, like I'm just holding my friends accountable and they're holding me sure. accountable. And that's what really, really matters to me. Um, not someone just writing this like message to me and like cussing me out. And I'm just like, you know, I don't really have the time and energy to deal with this today. And that's okay. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You, you you certainly don't need to respond to everyone. You've already mentioned a couple really awesome organizations that, uh, that you, uh, believe in and support. Um, are there any other ones as we think about these sort of action steps that folks can take besides finding their own way into this thing? Um, and, and, and what you're doing is certainly, well, it's one example, but like you said, Queer Bound Brown Vegan is you and you're doing all these things and now a book proposal too. But uh, any other organizations you specifically support or believe in or you think could use some help from the community or other things you've learned along the way, more specific things that people could use to apply themselves before I uh, get you out of here? 
Yeah, definitely. I would love to say I've consulted for Intersectional Environmentalists. They are an environmental justice media hub and resource. Um, they recently turned into a nonprofit, and I'm very good friends with all the co-founders of IE. So uh, I would say support them as they are currently in the grant stages and always looking for donors. And the other one is Slow Factory. They are an open education environmental justice institute. They offer free um, classes that are taught by Black, Indigenous people of color from fashion to spirituality to all of these um, plastics, like all of these conversations that are very unique. And I believe that really um, these are paving the way for a lot of millennials and Generation Z to have this open access knowledge to people. Oh, that's really cool. Well, I'll I'll definitely check those out and we'll we'll certainly put them uh, in the show notes for everybody. Isaiah, I can't can't thank you enough. I have a last couple questions we kind of ask everybody before we get them out of here, if if that's all right. And then we'll let you get back to educating the world here. Um, uh, Isaiah, when was the first time in your life uh, when you realized uh, you were part of something or you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful, whether yourself or, again, part of something bigger? I would say after I graduated college, I think this is because within academia, I always self-doubted myself. Like I think constantly every day I was like, I'm not smart enough to be here. I'm not smart. I'm not doing well. Like that was, I think the worst four years of like horrible, but also good at the same time experiences. And so I think once I've grown out from the traumas of academia, I felt like I can finally validate myself because I realized the institution was never meant for me and um, it was unsustainable, but pushing through, got through it, and now alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're thankful you did. And I, I uh, from everything I, I understand about um, academia and, and having friends that have been in it or are still in it, uh, I don't believe you were alone in the way you you felt. And in, in that, again, whether which, whichever specific institution it was, the grander institution is clearly uh, certainly got some issues. Yeah, um, definitely. Isaiah, who is someone in your life uh, that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say my best <laughs> friend, um, Christy Drummond, she runs Brown Girl Green. Uh, she does, she's an environmental media host and podcaster of Brown Girl Green. So um, she was also my former college friend, my housemate, postgrad, and now soon to be neighbor. So uh, she's one of my best friends. Yeah. And it's really great to have this like continued relationship since college. <laughs> Oh, that's so cool. There is nothing better than like living next to your people. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's just like the greatest feeling every day. Isaiah, you do so much. What is your self-care? How are you taking care of yourself these days? Because I, again, sometimes this can seem like a, a frivolous question, but um, certainly over the past year and, and right now, um, I think a lot of folks are uh, really Again, everyone needs to find their own thing, obviously, um, or maybe you already have them. But I think a lot of folks can find some inspiration and some leadership and whatever, even if it's ice cream or the walk in the forest, whatever it might be. I'm curious. Yeah, I would say that my self-care is to go out at least once a week to the outdoors, specifically Saturday or Sunday, go foraging or sometimes just hiking. It's really fun and therapeutic just to disconnect away and really just take the time to look and at nature. I really, It's really healing. <laughs> Oh God, yeah, I, I I fully agree. All I do is lock my children outside and uh, and try to help them understand that it is it is the greatest thing. It is the greatest balm. Um, we have one last question. I'm actually going to add a second part to it because I'm so curious. Uh, the the typical question, and you can think about it for a sec, is what is a 
a book you have read this year that has opened your mind to a topic you hadn't considered before or has changed your thinking in some way. Um, but then the second part is, uh, is there any specific resource about foraging you would recommend for, for folks who are interested in getting involved in that? Yeah, so the one book that has recently changed, and I'm still reading it, it's called um, A Red Deal, An Indigenous Way to Save the Planet. So the Red Deal is different from the Blue Deal and Green New Deal. So this deal is actually through an Indigenous um, nation called the Red Nation People and other collaborators. And so it really talks about the links between um, economic systems being decentralized in different countries due to U.S. interventions. And so it really allows you to understand how we should be fighting for an internationalism, meaning like the liberation for everyone. And so I've really learned that of these different issues because we're not always taught that in history. And with foraging, I would say like check in with your local indigenous groups or indigenous consultants. Like I hired one for the intro of foraging for me and I just learned the basics at it. And there's been a lot of really great accounts out there that I would follow, like Black Forager, for example, Chaotic Forager. Um, these are all really great foraging accounts that are BIPOC individuals. And so um, always ask yourself, like with foraging, like read books and watch YouTube videos is a great way to also learn and um, don't pick anything that you cannot identify. <laughs> <laughs> That's my entire worry is I'm going to tell my kids, yeah, you can eat anything from the forest. And then it goes drastically wrong. Uh, I appreciate that. I can't believe that you can remember, and this is more about me than you, that you can remember specific Instagram handles. Um, I can't remember like where I was before I walked into this room at this <laughs> point. So I'm, I'm so thankful that you've still got your wits together. And I'm definitely going to uh, check out the book. Um, and we have a whole list on Bookshop. Yeah. I'm sure if you're familiar with them, they're great of all of our uh, guest recommendations over time. So um, uh, that's what I got. Um, Isaiah, is there anything I'm missing? Any questions you wish I'd asked or anything you'd like to say to speak truth to power at all um, before we get you out of here? Yeah, I guess the last thing I'd say is like, you know, we can't liberate ourselves from this ecological crisis without our community. So just remembering that. That's awesome. Um, that is that is important and something I feel like folks can apply every day. Um Thank you so much. Hey, where, oh my gosh, after all this, uh, it's, I, I, it probably seems inherent to the conversation, but where do our listeners follow you online? Yeah, anywhere at Queer Brown Vegan, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, websites on there too. Same LinkedIn. thing everywhere? Yeah, everywhere. So same handle. So easy. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, that's great. Our uh, our Twitter handle is important, not imp, because there's not enough characters and it couldn't drive me crazier than it does. So I'm glad you got in with the, within the character limit there and it's all nice and unified. Isaiah, thank you so much uh, for your time and for everything you're doing. I, I really appreciate it. There's no better feeling than scr scrolling Twitter and being sad and then and then going over to your Instagram feed and feeling so inspired and educated and empowered to uh, to try to do some good. So so thank you and and good luck with the with the book proposal. Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks to our incredible guest today and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. <sighs> Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. 
And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.